What you're about to hear is episode 17 of the Books and Booze podcast. I am your host, John Levin, and this is the show where I sit down with authors, podcasters, and other interesting thinkers as we imbibe on our favorite alcoholic beverages and discuss thought-provoking books and the big ideas they contain. Our guest for this episode is Evan Sandhofner. Evan is a blogger and aspiring effective altruist. He is an alumni of both Microsoft and Harvard University. You can find Evan's writing at his personal blog and website, sandhofner.com. That is S-A-N-D-H-O-E-F-N-E-R.com. And you can follow him on Twitter, at Evan Sandhofner. Our conversation for this episode centers on Peter Singer's famous essay, Famine, Affluence, and Morality. Evan and I had a wide-ranging discussion of utilitarianism, effective altruism, and common objections to both philosophies. We also talk about wild animal suffering and why the heck we should even care about it. We also discuss vegetarianism, existential risk in the far future, donating money now versus donating money later, and the popularity or lack thereof uh, regarding the effective altruism movement. The show notes for this episode in particular are jam-packed with great links and references to the topics we discuss in this talk, so please check those out. The best ways to support this podcast are to simply share this episode with friends and family, either on social media or by word of mouth, and to also give us a rating on iTunes if you haven't done so already. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast or about me, you can go to my personal website, johnlevin.com. So thanks again for joining us, dear listener. I hope you enjoy episode 17, Famine, Affluence, and Morality with Evan Sandhofner. Evan, thanks so much for being on the show. Hey, John. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited. The first thing before we dive into the meat of this episode, let's talk about what we're drinking. Evan, what do we have today? I've got a couple of bottles of Ballast Point Sculpin over here. It's uh, one of the first IPAs that I tried back in college, and uh, I've always been a fan. So I've got a couple of those going. I got a few here on my end as well. I'm very excited. I'm an IPA guy, and this is really going to lubricate this podcast very much. So without further ado, we're going to pour the beer here, and I will Let's do it. toast to you, Evan. Thanks for being on the show. Cheers, man. Cheers. Let's have a good time. So actually, Evan, that was the first thing that drew me to you. I, I stumbled on your website somehow. I'm not even sure how I got there. And you had laid out on your website kind of a, a list of your beliefs very rationally and methodically. And it struck me that I had never in my life seen anyone publicly put their core beliefs out there like that. And I immediately thought, A, this is awesome. And B, this is a guy I got to talk to. So how did you how did you come up with that? Well, the idea for me originally came from somebody else's blog, actually, a guy named Brian Tomasic, who I'd encourage everybody to also check out. 
He's done a lot of really interesting thinking and writing on ethics and effective altruism. Especially, he's done a lot of stuff on animal welfare issues, but he touches other things as well. Anyway, he's got a, a similar kind of page, and his really is even more developed than mine. But I like to do something like that partly to keep track of my own mind. I feel like sometimes things can get so fragmented when you're thinking about complex issues that it helps to actually have things down and be like, how am I structuring my thinking right now? What kind of boxes can I put things in? And how do these different things connect to each other? And I suppose the other part of it is just letting people know if they're going to read something that I've written, which kinds of assumptions I'm bringing into it. Because it saves everyone a lot of time if you pull up a blog post and you kind of already know where the author's coming from. Like it's useful for people to know that I take utilitarianism and ethics and effective altruism pretty seriously. Otherwise, some of the stuff I've written just might not make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, and as a guy who is so uh, deep into the world of ethics and utilitarianism and effective altruism, I imagine you get some pretty interesting reactions from people. Before we even dive into the essay and and the, the topics at hand, I wonder how you kind of handle the nature of these interests, right? It, it, inevitably, when you're talking to people, you're introducing people to these concepts, you're going to kind of sound preachy, you're going to sound a little bit holier than thou. And it probably, I would imagine, turns a lot of people off instantly. And either they think you don't really mean what you're talking about, or you're just maybe trying to signal that you're, you know, ethically superior. How do you deal with um, that, those kind of reactions? Yeah, it's a good question. In my social circles, a lot of the time, I'm more or less insulated from that reaction because I spend a lot of time talking with people who are effective altruists or at least have heard of it. And I've talked about it enough with my very close friends that even if they're not drinking the Kool-Aid, they're kind of familiar with what's going on. So it's not every day that I confront that, but it's definitely a common reaction. And I think it's understandable. Uh, and it's a worthwhile PR concern for people who are talking about this publicly. But to be honest, I don't personally worry about it that much because the way I look at, at it is that this is a, a conversation for everyone to be part of. Uh, and what I'm trying to do really is, is stand back and look at the world and try to answer that question how do we do the most good? And I think it's important to try to answer that dispassionately and try not to get too wrapped up in what does this mean about me and my virtue? And uh, is this person trying to shame me? No, it, to me, it's just about having a discussion. And if you think I'm wrong, then tell me, I want to know exactly why I'm wrong and, and I'll update accordingly. But if you don't think I'm wrong and you just don't like what I'm saying, then there might be an issue there. So there's absolutely some discomfort in talking about these problems, but it's important for me to distinguish between discomfort that comes from this is wrong and discomfort that comes from, you know, how do we behave morally with our evolved hardware that is not really set up optimally for that purpose. So I know we're going to talk about that later on, but to me, that's sort of a challenge for us to navigate together rather than just shutting it down right away and going, oh, this is uncomfortable. It must be fishy. There must be something wrong about it. Right. 
Well, let's jump into the book, actually essay for this episode. It's Peter Singer's Famine, Affluence, and Morality. It's a very influential essay uh, in the world of philosophy. Evan, could you maybe tell us a little bit about the uh, what this essay is all about and how it affected you and the path that you're now on? Yeah, absolutely. So it's an essay that Peter Singer, an uh, influential moral philosopher, wrote back in 1971. I think it was published in 1972. And it's one of these essays that has been so influential that it kind of has been printed as a book in some places. Like you can find it in a bookstore once in a while, even though it's really pretty short. But actually, before I summarize it, I wanted to just say, if anybody wants to go ahead and read it, uh, it's really easy to find. There's different places you can find it. But if you just go to utilitarian.net slash Singer, for Peter Singer, they've listed a ton of stuff that he's written. And this is one of them. So if you scroll down a little ways, it's right there in plain text. Couple hours and you're done. And uh, I, I think it's worth reading the, the primary source. But basically the idea is he's trying to reshape the way that we think about morality and especially the way that we think about obligation. So part of the essay is this thought experiment about a shallow pond and a drowning child. So the idea is if you're walking through a park and you're near a pond and there's a child drowning in the middle, it would be wrong not to walk in and save the child, even though it might make you late for a meeting and you might mess up your clothes and it might not be comfortable for you. Clearly, you should go in because your sacrifice is not comparable to the benefit that you're conferring on this child by saving their life. And Singer basically argues that this example applies to a lot of other moral decisions where we might not ordinarily uh, think that way. So he adds in a couple of extra principles. He says uh, geographical separation between you and the child shouldn't make any difference. And the presence of bystanders shouldn't make any difference. So what he ultimately ends up saying based on uh, this reasoning is that we have a similar obligation to children starving or dying of preventable diseases halfway across the world that we have to that child drowning in the pond right in front of us. And the fact that we can donate a few dollars and really help people uh, that we may never meet, that really should be thought of as a, a kind of obligation and not simply as something that's optional, something that's charity. So he wants to reframe that. Uh, and the open challenge to anyone who finds that uncomfortable is, well, what exactly is wrong with it? Because the argument that's laid out seems to me fairly airtight. Yeah, I agree with you. It's a very airtight argument, which is what makes it so powerful. But at the same time, it exposes, I think, most people to their own moral shortcomings. Uh, it, it's easy when the person is right in front of you drowning and it's someone you know, you know, maybe someone from your, you might not know the person, but if they're from your local community, you you might know, you know, their parents or a friend of friend or whatever. And there's this personal connection to the person drowning. There's a duty associated with that person because you're within their proximity to save them. Whereas a person on the other side of the world who you're nowhere near them in terms of proximity, um, many people would sort of... Uh, suggest that you don't have a responsibility or an obligation or a duty to help that person 
to your own slight detriment. We'll get into all that stuff as we go, but it's it's such a powerful argument, and it really, I think, comes down to what's at the core of this movement. Let me know if you agree or disagree, but it's really kind of a um, kind of a cause agnosticism or a personal agnosticism where it really doesn't matter if somebody is close to you geographically or in terms of personal relations or if they look like you or speak your language it's really about doing the most good wherever the most good is regardless of your personal preference does that do you agree with that does that kind of sum it up a little bit yeah absolutely so a way that some people say this some of the time is that effective altruism uh is based on a question and not an answer so the question is how do we do the most good in the world? And the process is using evidence and reasoning to try to figure that out. But the answer is less certain and people can come up with different answers and the answers can change over time. So it's interesting when people come away with the impression that effective altruism is in some ways dogmatic or single-minded because really it's, it's very open-minded uh, having been built essentially around a, a question. And nothing is in principle off limits if you can demonstrate rigorously that it's going to do a whole lot of good for the world. Yeah, it's it's basically the uh, quantitative person's idea of morality. It, it's crunching the numbers. Where is am I going to do the most good, right? And most of the time, the reality is in the United States, it's not going to be in your local neighborhood. It's going to be on the other side of the world, where there's much more kind of low-hanging fruit as far as charity goes. But the result of that, of course, is it means you're not generally helping out people like you. And we'll get into all this stuff, but it's a really provocative idea because if you're living in the wealthier countries, and if you're listening to this, you probably are. And if you're an effective altruist, you probably are. And not only are you in those countries, but you're probably one of the wealthier people yourself in those countries. So almost inevitably, if you take this position, you're not going to be helping yourself or people like you. You're going to be giving a whole lot more than you're getting and not getting a lot of uh, local kind of credit for it. You're not going to get those social brownie points. You're not going to kind of have a, you know, giving a big plastic rubber check to your local church or your local art museum as a philanthropist. You're going to be doing much more uh, kind of colder, calculated, utilitarian uh calculations where you're doing wherever the most good is, even if you don't get the warm and fuzzies that most people I think associate with philanthropy, which brings me to the point there, kind of the, one of the core ideas of this philosophy is that most people are not very effective in their charity or in their morality, which is another thing that kind of insults people. So I kind of went on a tangent there, but maybe if you could comment on that and then string together how this essay relates to the larger utilitarian concept and then how that leads right into effective altruism. Uh, would you mind summing that up? Yeah, sure. So Singer starts in the early 70s commenting specifically on the problems in uh, Bangladesh at the time uh, and then sort of extends the reasoning to say, well, this in principle applies to any kind of global crisis or any people who are starving or anything like that. And really you can go even farther than that. So uh, the contribution of effective altruism in 
growing the reasoning that sort of germinated in this essay is let's think about, as you mentioned, cost neutrality and where exactly are the opportunities to do the most good. So, so yes, preventing famine, absolutely one. Uh, preventing diseases in the developing world, such as malaria and schistosomiasis, absolutely. But what happens when we also start to think about improving the lives of animals or changing the way that we treat animals on farms or safeguarding the future of civilization? So this is a really exciting and sort of uh, more complex area of analysis. How do we ensure that the development of artificial intelligence is going to go well for everyone? How do we prevent an, another big pandemic like the Spanish flu from happening and killing maybe 10% of the world's population? These are all up for grabs for, uh, for people who are so inclined to go and work on them directly or do research toward them, or for uh, anyone with any job to donate toward these and, and, and try to help that way. So uh, this essay really feeds right into effective altruism. And the essential idea is we all have an obligation to do uh, much more than we tend to think to help the world in whatever ways we can. It's quite a call to action if I ever heard one. So, so you have this essay which feeds into this movement. And my understanding is that there's really kind of two core ways to contribute to this, this movement. You can either work directly uh, for a charity that is highly effective. You can do research or cause prioritization type of work where you're trying to figure out where um, the best opportunities are to, to give effectively, or you can advocate through, you know, whatever means to get the word out and get more people on the effective altruism bandwagon. But generally speaking, that is only for kind of the most uh, effective people, for lack of a better term. It would be the people that have the skills, um, whether it's programming or data science type skill set, or it's people that have very large followings that when they advocate for something, people actually care versus if someone like me was to try to advocate for effective altruism, it, it just wouldn't go very far compared to if someone like Oprah advocated for effective altruism because she has such a, a, a large platform. So for the majority of people, the recommendation from 80,000 Hours, uh, which is sort of the group that, one of the groups in the effective altruism orbit that looks a lot at career and how you can do the most good, they suggested the best thing that you can actually do is just work a normal high-paying career, pretty much try to get uh, the highest salary you can without doing anything super unethical, and then give that money away. Most people would be more most effective going down that route. That's the route that personally I'm on and, and continue to uh, evolve on. But there's a few people out there, people like yourself, that just have the skill set where they can probably do more good directly impacting these charities rather than just, just giving their money away. So it'd be interesting if you could maybe talk a little bit about the pros and cons of direct work and your path versus the kind of work to give path. Yeah, well, as a matter of history, 
I think the movement of effective altruism started out with a greater focus on the earning to give approach. And uh, there's relatively less of that now, although they're both still definitely very solid approaches. I think it ultimately depends on your own circumstances, skills, personality. Uh, but there's been something of a change in thinking about whether there's more of a funding gap or a talent gap. Uh, and when the movement started out, people were thinking there are loads of folks who want to go and work for nonprofits, and there aren't as many folks who are willing to fund those nonprofits. And so if the world is that way, then you think, okay, marginally speaking, more good is going to come from just sending dollars than giving your hours. But if you find that in at least some cases, there really is a talent gap and you have some circumstances where organizations have the money to hire new people or perhaps could benefit just from having more applicants so that they could get a more talented or more dedicated average employee, then you start to think, okay, on the margin, I really should go and give my hours and work directly. So it, it depends both on you as an individual and on what's going on in the broader ecosystem. But generally speaking, I would say considering your own advantages is the most straightforward way to answer this question. So I worked at Microsoft for a short time and I was making a good salary and I could have turned that into a really effective earning to give situation. But I kept thinking about how much I would rather be doing direct work. And that kind of psychological obsession made it difficult for me to really perform at my maximum in that job. It made me fairly unhappy overall. So due to sheer psychological factors, I decided that I should at least try out the other path. So that's where I'm at now, and we'll see what happens. Uh, but I think absolutely it's down to the individual uh, to, to look at themselves honestly and figure out where am I going to have the best impact. And if you can make a high salary, or frankly, even a, even a moderate salary, enough that you can give some away, and you're happy doing that, then do that. Um, but I do think overall that the importance of looking at one's own interests and talents might be underestimated by some effective altruists. So I would not encourage people generally to just go to 80,000 hours and pick whatever they say is the most effective. Perhaps that's obvious, but you've got to consider where you actually fit in. So if on paper, the sixth most effective job is the one that you're going to be more excited to do and more talented at, then that's the one you should take. So it's a balancing act, I suppose, and it's, it's up to the individual. It is definitely an interesting kind of quandary for someone who's kind of new to this movement, trying to figure out where they fit in it. Like me personally, you know, uh, <laughs> I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't work at Microsoft. So there's sort of like, you, you see people, if you hang out on the effective altruism forums, 
most of these people seem like geniuses, right? They're all very, very well-educated. They all are extremely thorough in everything they say. It's one of the problems with the movement is you almost feel like me mortals who aren't, you know, on a coastal city uh, working for a tech company almost feel uh, like afraid to contribute or, or write something on the Facebook page because the, the bar is just set so high for uh, the intellectual standard. So the, the reaction, I think, I can say from experience that kind of the uh, normal people have is like, holy crap, man, there's there's no way I would be effective in direct work. You know, I, I don't have any experience in big data or machine learning or anything like that. So I don't know if it's just me and my own insecurity or if other people feel this way, but I feel like the bar for direct work is set very, very high and that for people who didn't go to Ivy League schools or people that don't have quantitative backgrounds, they don't really see a way to be effective other than working to give. Um, that could just be me, but that's my, my comment. Well, it's an interesting point, and I, I think it, it really depends on which specific kind of direct work you're thinking about. Um, for example, a lot of organizations now in effective altruism are wanting more talented operations folks. So if you don't think your skill set is best catered to doing high octane research or you know working on making safe AI because it's so intensely technical, there's nothing to say that you wouldn't be a super effective uh, person in the operations department of some organization that just makes sure that everything goes more smoothly and that's obviously a vital role. So uh, I'm I'm not, uh, yeah, I suppose I'm not super aware of which kinds of opportunities are best for which kinds of people. Again, that that's up to the individual. But uh, I I do think there's uh, there's some variance inside the category of direct work that opens it up to more different kinds of people than than you might realize. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a very good point. But uh, I hope so anyway. Um, I'd like it to be that way. And insofar as it's not that way, maybe that's something we ought to change. I want to go back to this work to give concept because this was probably the most uh, unexpected revelation that I had as I was kind of getting introduced to all this stuff was the idea that uh, I think the example they used in Will McCaskill's Doing Good Better, I might be butchering it, but I think it was like a, a lawyer who you know was probably making like 600 bucks an hour or something like that, who, in, who volunteered at a soup kitchen and, and you measured the effectiveness of that versus that person just working extra hours, getting extra income and donating it. And the takeaway was the person is much, much more effective if they just work to give versus doing the direct work. And in fact, I think McCaskill had a pretty provocative example where he suggested that people working for Wall Street firms, for example, could be among the most effective altruists in the world, even if they were maybe working in a job that was not the most ethical. And it that kind of blew my mind when I chewed on that for a while. And then I decided to take it a step further and present this idea to you. Let me know what you think. This idea of a uh, like a drug kingpin, like a cocaine dealer who has built up a $50 million empire through his drug work, his, you know, 
pushing these addictive drugs that kill some pe- number of people from overdoses, but he's able to basically fund the entire or, or a large part of the effective altruism movement. Ethically, how would you think about an individual like that? I know it's a pretty wild question, but let me know what you think. Yeah, well, I think there's no reason in principle why that couldn't be a good thing. So it's a matter of doing the calculus and weighing the pros and cons, right? And you'd have to know exactly how many people his drugs are killing or otherwise impoverishing or making their lives worse. Um, You'd have to know that and weigh it against the benefits. You'd also want to factor in the norm effects, perhaps, of of, uh, encouraging other people to also go and be uh, drug kingpins. Um, So there's a lot of stuff that you'd end up putting in the ledger on both sides. But I don't think there's any rule that's sort of built into morality that says this can never be okay. In principle, I think if you had dirty money and you used it to save, you know, thousands of lives, that might be okay. It's not necessarily uh, what you want to put on a billboard to advertise effective altruism. But uh, yeah, these corner cases of utilitarianism. I think they can be interesting intuition pumps, but I worry about taking them too seriously because a lot of people consider these crazy cases and then they think, well, if utilitarianism supports this crazy case, utilitarianism must be wrong. But the fact is, it matters that these cases are rare, possibly to the point of being non-existent. Um, That matters because you have to consider what the alternatives to utilitarianism are. So a lot of people in my experience who say, oh, utilitarianism is no good because it encourages these things to feel wrong. A lot of these people don't seem to have a competing theory. They're just kind of going with their gut. And me personally, I don't think that's the way to go. I think that morality is something that can be formalized and made rigorous. It's something that we can actually debate about. It's something where there are truths, even though those truths can be fuzzy and unclear at some times. Uh, I think it's ridiculous to argue that some moral views are not better than others. So all things considered, I'd like to see the moral theory that does better than utilitarianism. I haven't seen it yet. So these corner cases, they're, they're strange, but yeah, if it follows from the theory, then it follows from the theory. That's my view. You're a good utilitarian, Evan. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. One of the tough parts about utilitarianism is this this calculation, this calculus, how much harm versus how much good. These And we bring out these crazy cases like the drug dealer, and it's all about, well, if in theory you knew exactly how much was on, you know, how much harm or well-being or suffering was on each side of the ledger, you could make, you know, a pretty simple decision. But the problem is things are not that easily quantifiable. I am um, in my my more naive days, I thought it would be kind of easy to somehow quantify well-being as a concept and then just solve everything for that. Solve every government policy, solve every everything for that. And then the more I, I dove into the science of of well-being and the psychology surrounding that, the more I realized how fuzzy these concepts were and how 
devilishly difficult it is to quantify things like suffering, things like well-being. But that's really the core of utilitarianism. So how do we, uh, if, if we're someone who leans utilitarian, how do we kind of get over that quantification hump? Because it's hard. Yeah, it's absolutely hard. I would say that it's the right idea in spite of its hardness. And I think that often it's what we're implicitly doing anyway, and we're just doing it badly. So when we consider whether we would support some piece of legislation or some nonprofit activity or whatever attempt to change the status quo, we're implicitly considering how it affects humans. And some of us go further in considering how it affects other conscious beings. I think a lot of people do that, even if they don't follow a vegan diet or whatever. People are concerned about the polar bears uh, and the shrinking ice caps and all of this. So we're considering consequences implicitly. And it's just how good of a job can we do in considering them? And this is why actually one of my hobby horses is to say that we need more attention paid to figuring out consciousness. Because to me, utilitarianism is, uh, is about conscious creatures. And the first question you should want to answer in order to implement utilitarianism is, what is a conscious creature? Where are they? How many of them are there? Are some of them more conscious than others? What does that mean? So there are all these puzzles when you think hard about who we ought to consider as moral patients as uh, subjects worthy of moral consideration. And these are really, really hard. And sometimes I despair of ever finding a, a solution to some of these questions, but I think they are, are the essential questions. So to me, when you ask about weighing, the first thing I think is we've got to get a handle on consciousness. We've got to be able to say which entities are conscious how conscious are they? What kind of experiences do they tend to have? What kind of experiences will they have if we perform X or Y intervention? And as we understand that better, we're going to make better decisions uh, in terms of the moral calculus or, or that ledger. Um, a, an interesting anecdote here is Descartes used to think that dogs were not conscious. Dogs were basically machines that sort of emulated the behavior of consciousness, but didn't have the actual internal experience that we have. So if you hurt a dog and it yelps and, and runs away, it's just like a sophisticated clock going through the motions. It doesn't really feel anything. And people believe this, and there were some heinous consequences. So this was a time that there was vivisection. Uh, People would basically dissect animals while they were alive to see what was going on inside. No anesthetic, nothing, no concern. And as the story goes, people would basically kind of laugh at those who said, oh, my God, what are you doing? Because they thought that they were following the best science. Uh, 
in saying, no, don't worry, the dog doesn't actually feel anything. It's kind of an illusion. So it's pretty clear to me that as we understand consciousness better, we're going to be able to implement our morality better as well. I think that's that's one of the priorities there. Yeah, definitely makes sense to me. The problem is consciousness is such an unknown at this point, I think, that it's that uh you really I just have no idea. It's almost unexplored. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but it's critically important and yet it's something we know nothing about or very little about as far as use to, to the ability or to the point where we could actually use it in utilitarian calculations. We're just so far away from that. It like astounds me sometimes. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I think we're very far from the point where we could come up with say a, a consciousness meter, you know, this is the, the fanciful best case scenario of consciousness research where you can sort of scan a brain or I suppose any physical system and read out exactly which conscious experiences they're having, if any. Um, that's insanely far away, it seems anyway, and it's not clear to me that it's even possible. But even slightly adjusting our probabilities that we assign to the consciousness of, of different kinds of animals is valuable. And that's a place where I think it's relatively easier to make progress. So we can look at the neuroanatomy and behavior of various insects and try to decide how likely it is that they're conscious. And are we interested in drawing some line or just having these different uh, thresholds of different levels of consciousness? Um, but we can evolve our understanding of is a rat conscious, is a cricket conscious, is a fruit fly conscious, and so on all the way down, we can evolve that understanding uh, all the time as, as new science comes out. Um, so so I, I don't think it's hopeless, but I agree that it's hard. I'm going to ask what might be a silly question, maybe a newbie question, but a lot of times when we think of these consciousness meters and we wonder how much dogs and crustaceans can feel and therefore how bad is it when we eat them or do experiments on them it's kind of really easy in a sense because humans are almost always at the top of that hierarchy of consciousness and we never have to really confront the possibility that we may find something that's got a higher level of consciousness than us and therefore there is more moral weight assigned to their interests than our own and maybe this is a silly question but what what if we ran into aliens or some other beings that had clearly a superior level of consciousness to ourselves and we were no longer at the top of that totem pole of consciousness we would suddenly be changing the utilitarian calculus in such a way that we might actually um the, the quote-unquote utilitarian or moral thing to do might be to be slaves or something for this um superior uh being the superior species of of life what do, what do you think about that kind of hypothetical yeah it reminds me of uh the other hypotheticals that are are used to sort of stretch utilitarianism in, in one or the other direction and i'll i'll bite the bullet again i think that in principle we could one day have that obligation and I think that follows 
relatively transparently from rejecting speciesism in general. So if you don't figure that uh, membership in a particular species is the essential uh, quality for moral consideration, which frankly, no one who's ever owned a dog uh, feels that way. Um, That's good. Then, then yes, you know, uh, that could happen. One hopes that uh, it doesn't. <laughs> now, <laughs> I, I should clarify sometimes when I'm biting these bullets that I think it makes sense as a matter of theory and that's different from saying that I would be happy to have it happen. You know, the, the, this counterfactual makes me uncomfortable. Um, I like humanity. I'd like to see it continue. I'd be more inspired by a vision of the future in which we somehow merge with our uh, alien overlords than merely become subjugated by them. But <laughs> these are all open questions, I suppose. And then uh, you get into the question of whether we should really expect there to be extraterrestrial life at all. And uh, I think a, a pretty popular answer to that these days is, is actually no, even though the universe is so large because of what's called the, the Fermi paradox, which I don't know if we really want to get into, but in a nutshell, it's if the universe is so large and there should be lots of alien life, and why haven't we already seen them? This goes into interesting different uh, alleyways, and we could have a whole podcast just about that. But my point is, the alien hypothetical is one thing, but we might not ever see these aliens. Uh, they might not be any smarter than us, et cetera, et cetera. And then another, way, another place that you can take this is, what about artificial intelligence? We might be creating those aliens that will be smarter or more conscious than we are boom mind blown and yeah that's the big one because that's something that's happening right here you know we don't have to wait for the aliens to come from uh from a few galaxies over we could build that and and that i think is a very serious question to, to try to deal with that's definitely some great stuff to to ponder and to think about let's um let's bring it back from the hypothetical more to the real world practical implications of uh, utilitarianism and effective altruism. So let's just say, hypothetically, I agree with you, Evan. I agree with your, your logic, right? I agree that you should do more good wherever you can, regardless of who or where that good is occurring. You're unbiased uh, and you want to do as much good as you can. However, in the real world, as, as Singer kind of challenges us in his essay, that requires giving up a lot. Uh, it basically suggests that, you know, you shouldn't take that fancy European vacation when you can donate it to against malaria or deworm the world or, or what have you. And for a lot of people, that's just like a very demanding um, challenge. It's in fact, it's called the demandingness objection to utilitarianism, which I'm sure you're extremely familiar with. And this is a thing I, I have kind of been stuck on a little bit. Um, the difference between what you know is right and actually doing it in practice. And it, for some reason, I think about this in the same way that I think about going on a diet. I know what I need to do to be in really good shape. I know I need to cut my calories. And I need to exercise more. 
but actually doing it, actually overcoming my own shortcomings is extremely difficult. And most of the time I sit around and I drink Ballast Point IPA instead of going for a five mile run. And so at the end of the day, I'm not nearly as fit as I could be. And the same would seem to apply in the moral sphere where I'm not nearly as moral as I could be. Like, you know, I took a vacation two years ago. Should, should I feel bad about that? Um, how, how do you kind of think about these demandingness objections and this kind of moral tug of war between what we know we should do if we follow the utilitarian logic and then what uh, our actual limitations are in, in reality? Yeah, well, it's an interesting line of thought, but it's never really been clear to me that the demandingness objection is an objection at all. Uh, sometimes it seems to me more of a complaint. <laughs> and complaining is fine, but does it change the truth value of what we're talking about? And I'm actually really happy that you brought up the diet example, because I was going to say something similar. Um, I think there's a realm of truths, and then there's what we do with those truths. So the nutritionist tells you, you would be healthiest if you had fewer than 10 grams of sugar a day. I made that number up, let's just suppose. And you log your nutrition in, in some app for a few days, and you realize, oh my God, I'm having 70 grams of sugar a day, right? Uh, what are you going to do? Maybe you'll cut it all the way to 10 and that would be awesome and you'd be super healthy and everything would be great. Maybe you won't cut it at all and that would be kind of a shame, but you know, it is what it is. Maybe you cut it down to 25 or 40 or something like that and you've improved things. You know, you're short of the perfect standard but you've improved your life and, and nobody can take that away from you and, and nobody should, uh, you know, criticize that unduly because you're improving yourself. Maybe the week after that, you bring it down even more. Uh, and to me, we're in a similar place with morality. The moral considerations that someone like Singer makes, you know, dispassionately uh, from a place of standing back and analyzing everything, these are meant to establish some kinds of truths. And we have to decide how we incorporate those truths into our lives. So in the same way that the nutritionist tells you the best case scenario is 10 grams of sugar a day, Singer tells you the best case scenario is to donate to the point of uh, marginal utility, where if you were to donate another dollar, you would actually hurt yourself as much as you'd benefit the person you're donating to. So this is donating to quite a, an extreme level of poverty from the point of view of those of us in the developed world. And he's laying out this ideal. And it's up to each of us how close we want to come to that. So uh, I don't really understand the demanding this objection because I don't understand why we should expect a true moral theory, or let's say a moral theory that uh, you know, internally consistent and elegant and simple and all of these things. I don't understand why we should expect it not to be demanding. Uh, life is demanding. Uh, there's no demanding this objection to having to go out and get a job to put food on the table 
you know, or uh, having the flu once every other year, like things are demanding. And it's a double standard to expect morality not to be that way. Now, I will say there's a different kind of demanding subjection that is not totally unreasonable. In fact, it's a good point. And this is just to say we should moderate what we uh, advertise to others, what we encourage others to do. So this is more the demanding subjection to certain kinds of marketing or what kind of messages you want to send. And sure, it's fair enough to make the point that, you know, if you encourage a thousand people to each donate 10% of their incomes every year, then, you know, a, a lot of them might actually do that, or some of them will do that. And if you encourage them all instead to donate 50% of their incomes, maybe no one would do it, and the whole project would be a failure. So this kind of adulterated demanding this objection is like, what uh, ought we to do as a practical matter? How do we uh, interface between the moral truths that we uncover and the psychological truths that we know about ourselves and others? But that's on a totally different level of abstraction. So that has nothing to do with whether utilitarianism is true or what the best case scenario is. That's just a matter of strategy. And to construe it as a uh, criticism of utilitarianism per se, I think is is actually just a, a mistake. That's a good answer. You, you made a lot of points there that I, I hadn't really considered, particularly the one where you essentially said, life isn't easy. Why should morality be? Um, that That's a really good comment that I'm going to chew on for a very long time. So thanks for uh, putting that forward. Um I, know, I apologize if I keep asking the same question in different forms, but this is just kind of what the stuff that I'm, I'm still trying to figure out. So, for example, there mm-hmm. are a lot of bugs in our, our human wiring. We're, we're really not wired to be utilitarians, it seems. We kind of have a preference for ourselves, for the people around us, our family and close friends. And then we expand that circle a little bit to our neighbors and, and, and acquaintances, and then maybe expand the circle a little wider to people in our nation. And then, you know, expand it a little further to people that look and act like us or maybe humanity in general. And then the, the far outer rings are other sentient animals and other sentient beings. But the reality is, most people don't get that far to the outer edges of the circle and that we're kind of wired not to give a shit about people that aren't close to us, right? People suggest that there are serious evolutionary advantages to prioritizing your kin and to prioritizing your in-group. And we really seem to be kind of wired for this, right? There's all, all kinds of studies out there that show um, the – the idea that if you, for example, put a commercial on TV where you have one single sick or dying kid, you'll get more charity dollars raised on, on that uh, commercial asking you to donate than if you were to show a large group of kids. Um, I, I think it's called statistical numbing or psychic numbing, but it's basically the equivalent to the misquoted Stalin quote that one death is a tragedy and a million deaths is a statistic. It's this idea that the bigger the problem, the, the less compelled you kind of are to help. And this is a very real effect. How, how can we, with our faulty human wiring, assuming you agree with, with kind of that premise, 
how can we kind of try to get over that? Um, most people just aren't inclined to give, to, pardon my language, to give a crap about someone on the other side of the world versus someone they can help at home. That's just kind of the mainstream conventional morality. How, uh, how can we get over that? Yeah, I think about that a lot too. And I'm just going to be honest. First of all, I don't have all the answers to this one. Uh, it's a really deep question. And I think it's something that we're going to be thinking of in perpetuity, at least until if you believe that this will ever happen until we get to some kind of a transhuman state. You know, some people think that the ultimate ideal should be to change our hardware. You know, we've inherited this uh, hardware from evolution that has some bugs in it, or at least is designed for ends that we no longer uh, recognize as the most desirable goals. So if Elon Musk succeeds in uh, one of his many projects, which is to... Uh, you know, uh, advance the field of brain-computer interfaces, then, uh, then that'll change the whole game, right? But until then, we've got to work with what we've got, which is these three pounds of, of wet meat that makes all our decisions for us. And, uh, and yeah, there's all kinds of problems with it. Um, I think you could pluck any effective altruist out of a... Uh, out of a conference and they would admit that they absolutely struggle with these things. Um, so it's, it's not as though any of us have sort of transcended our mammalian origins. Um, it's a question of how can we do better than we did yesterday, you know, and it comes back to the nutrition thing. Really? It's like, we'll probably never be perfect. I certainly wouldn't hold my breath, but can we be a little bit better? And this onus, again, is on everyone. So it's on the individual to look inward and try to uh, adjust one's own utility function, adjust the things that one values. But it's also on people who are actually part of organizations that shape the messages that people receive, you know, so anybody who's doing advocacy should absolutely take these things into account. And uh, a simple example of, of a lesson of this literature is maybe you should just show a picture of one pig on a factory farm and tell the story of this one pig and then maybe introduce the scope of the problem and how you can help. But you've got to tell the story, and there's no reason not to tell the story as a hook. And the temptation to just have a PowerPoint slide that says, by the way, you know, 60 billion land animals are slaughtered every year on factory farms, that temptation is to be avoided. You can put that slide later, but first to tell, tell the story of the one pig that gets people feeling sympathetic, you know, so we can actually use these lessons and play into them. And as long as the bugs are here, we might as well uh, run with them, as long as we can do so without causing some additional harm. I do think it's kind of a tightrope walk between playing into the bugs and almost manipulating them for better ends and trying to delete the bugs. 
and actually change uh, the way that we think about things. And there can be some success on both sides. So it's encouraging to remember that our moral circle really has expanded already. And I suppose it's not inevitable that it will continue to do so, but one might expect it to, you know, think about uh, the way that uh, white Americans treated black Americans a few hundred years ago. And this problem is not solved, but it's so, so much better. And this is one piece of the expanding circle. And in principle, it can continue to expand to uh, the way that we treat all, all conscious uh, life, all conscious entities. So this is another challenge. And this is why we need all types, you know. Uh, we need the psychological literature to tell us how do we up the salience on some of these uh, some of these facts that are otherwise hard to act on. So it's a challenge to be solved, and it's a hard one, but I remain hopeful. Yeah, me too. Uh, let me ask you this. This is I know these are just kind of crazy left field questions, but gotta ask them anyway. Sometimes I think about ethics. Um, and I, I, I'm totally on board with basically everything that you said. I, I consider myself following a similar philosophy, a similar track, similar morality as, as what you're talking about. But again, then I, I look in the real world and I see some problems. One is that in the grand scheme of things, morality sometimes seems like a self-limiting concept. Like if you think about, if you're going to be a, a powerful, influential person, someone who is at the top of the corporate ladder or a politician who can actually enact change, I, I really struggle to see how you could ever get to that point being ethical. It, it really seems like at some point it's so cutthroat. It's so much about kind of personal preference and trading favors um, that I sometimes just I view the ethical person, maybe someone with the idea, um, the ideas that we're discussing that has lofty goals as someone who's just not going to get very far because they've essentially taken their toolbox and thrown out half of the tools. So maybe I'm just way too cynical, way too much of a pessimist. But I wonder how self-limiting ethics really are as far as like getting to the top of the influential pyramid and then being able to actually enact ethical changes. So it's kind of this problem where you almost have to be unethical to get to a stage where your ethics actually brings about positive change. Cause me personally, I'm a nobody. I can be as ethical as I want, but it's not going to influence anyone. It's not going to rub off on anyone um, or very few people, maybe my immediate family. So I know that's a crazy question, but um, to what extent do you think, uh, you can basically rise to the top of the social hierarchy ethically. And then once you get there, kind of spread utilitarian or ethical um, norms among the population, or, or is that just too self-limiting? Yeah, well, it's a good question. I'm not qualified to answer it in terms of becoming, say, a CEO of some big company, uh, which obviously could be really desirable if you wanted to be the earning to give type. I don't know exactly how much dirty stuff you'd have to do 
uh, to get there. But if you take a different route, I can definitely see uh, you being able to do it without, uh, without sacrificing your principles. So for example, building uh, an audience for yourself. Uh, if all the way through you're talking about moral principles, um, it's not super clear to me that you'd have to uh, do anything narrowly bad uh, to achieve your success. But I guess maybe that's neither here nor there. I think in general, something to recommend utilitarianism is that it allows you to make these short-term sacrifices um, or let's say short-term violations of some principle in exchange for some long-term greater good. So if you have to be a little bit sneaky to become CEO and then donate all your money, well, we're sort of back to the drug kingpin thing that we talked about earlier. And it's just a matter of being honest with yourself about, you know, what are my real intentions here? And once I become CEO, Am I going to do the right thing or am I by breaking these norms now sort of deteriorating my moral character in a way that uh, might be irredeemable? So you can justify certain things, but you need to keep a close eye on the line between justification and rationalization. And you don't want to just let yourself run wild. You know, you have to almost distrust yourself a little bit because as we said before, the evolutionary pressures to put self and kin first are so strong that you should always kind of look at yourself askance. Like, am I really doing this because it's going to help me to be more charitable in the future? Or am I just doing it because I want a nice car? You know, you've got to kind of keep an eye on yourself that way. But it's always a balancing act. This is at once the elegant thing about utilitarianism and the frustrating thing is that there's no answer across the board. And it sort of counts on you to assess your own situation honestly and skillfully. Which is very difficult. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you're familiar with the book that came out a year or so ago, The Elephant in the Brain by Robin Hanson and Kevin Simler. But it's basically about strategic self-deception, where it, it talks about that idea of being honest with yourself and honest about your own motives and just how tough that is. Ba the basic thesis is that we're strategically designed to trick ourselves into thinking we're being moral when we're not. And, and it just uh, it seems like if, if we're relying on our own individual honesty and having an objective view of ourselves as to whether or not we're following the moral path, we're, we're kind of in trouble, at least until Elon Musk's uh, neural laces get finished and then maybe maybe we'll have a better idea about our own motivations then. Yeah, it's a fair point. This whole path is, is definitely fraught. Um, unfortunately, I haven't read uh, The Elephant in the Brain yet, but I, I heard a few interviews that Robin did uh, when he was promoting it, and it seems like everyone that I know has loved it and I'm looking forward to getting to it soon. Uh, it definitely seems to feed into this question of being honest with yourself about your motives. So maybe it should be required reading for effective altruists or something like that. 
I love the book. It's one of the few books I gave five stars to last year. It's really worth your time, I think. Does he do um does he do charity? I know he does like a series of case studies. Is charity one of them? Yes. Oh, cool. Okay. So let's circle back. Speaking of charity, going back to effective altruism, we kind of did the whole first hour framing it from the most easy to digest, I think at least, easiest to digest sect of the effective altruist religion, which is the global health type of um, giving, um, helping people in other countries who are poor or don't have the nutrients they need to survive and live healthy, fulfilling lives. But there's two other very large and very important divisions in this uh, effective altruist world. And they are the suffering of animals and the uh, far future slash existential risk. So maybe we can talk about that for a little bit. I know the uh, suffering of animals is extremely close to your heart. It's one of your biggest interests, one of your uh, areas of subject matter expertise. Could you maybe uh, talk a little bit about the wild animal suffering uh, division of the effective altruism movement? Uh, why it's so important and why we should prioritize it over other things, if that's what you believe. And if so, what are the top top charities out there for making a difference um, towards reducing animal suffering? Yeah, all right. So wild animal suffering is a uh, really interesting area, I think. It's an area that I had really never, ever thought about until I found Brian Tomasic's blog. So again, that's worth checking out. He's done a lot of the foundational work on this topic. Uh, I think that's reducing-suffering.org. Um, but it shouldn't be too hard to find if you've got his name and, and the title. Maybe we can put a link up somewhere. And um, yeah, anyway, basically, I stumbled across his blog after I'd already been vegetarian for like a month or two, because I was concerned about the suffering of farm animals. But it never, ever occurred to me until I read on Brian's blog to worry about the suffering of wild animals. And once I did read about it, it was like, oh, my God, how did I not think of that before? It's actually a similar feeling to uh, the aftermath of my reading Famine, Affluence, and Morality because I, I think the case is so airtight and it's just a matter of it never occurred to me before, you know, and we're, we're good at doing that. We're good at leaving certain uh, factors just completely unconsidered and you walk by wild animals all the time and don't really give a thought to what their lives are like. So Anyway, the basic case for caring about wild animal welfare is, first of all, that there are so many wild animals. Um, I mean, it's just a huge domain. So if they are moral patients at all, then uh, plausibly there's a huge amount of suffering or pleasure tied up in uh, their lives. So. It should be on your radar just because of the size. And then there are some other considerations that make you think, oh, maybe these animals are actually really unhappy and suffering quite a lot. So 
obviously in a state of nature, there's predation and parasites and disease and cold and hunger. You know, it's not really a pleasant place. And we have this bias toward thinking that what is natural is good, but it's clearly not because we humans also evolved in a state of nature and we got the hell out of that state of nature as quickly as we could because <laughs> it's nice to have hospitals and houses and central heating, you know, look around you and just think for a day, like, how would I feel, you know, sleeping outside, especially you on the East coast. I mean, you have it rougher than I do here, but, um, it's rough and it's rough for the animals too, you know. Um, they have certain adaptations, of course, that we don't have uh, that enable them to survive uh, in the climates that they've adapted to, but that doesn't mean it's a, it's a walk in the park. And another factor that gives us some reason to suppose that certain animals probably have overall pretty bad lives is our selection. So. Some people might remember this from biology classes, but it's, I, I didn't really until I started reading about the wild animals. Um, basically, uh, it's this old idea in biology that there are two different strategies for reproduction. Uh, they're called R selection and K selection, which admittedly are not the best names, but they come from this mathematical equation where two of the quantities are, are labeled R and K. And the idea is K-selected species have a few offspring and they invest a whole lot in uh, making sure that those offspring do well. So humans are K-selected. We only have a few kids each and we invest in them. A uh, lot of animals though are R-selected. Uh, they might have dozens of offspring uh, and then actually invest relatively little in each of them because they're just playing the numbers game. So you can think of a spider with this egg sac full of, you know, maybe a hundred offspring, but there's a problem there. If you assume that the population is stable, then each set of parents can only uh, have two offspring survive and reproduce on average, right? Because two parents, two offspring, you know, you can't have this population explosion. If every pair of parents had a hundred offspring that survived to reproduction, uh, you know, the, the, the population would explode and things would not, be, uh, would not be sustainable. So what you get essentially is a very high infant mortality rate. You know, if you figure that a spider has 100 eggs and on average two of them survive to successful reproduction, you might figure that a lot of those spiders probably die relatively young. Uh, their deaths probably are not the most pleasant and they haven't lived a long enough life to make those deaths worthwhile. So this is where some people conclude that certain species really have more uh, suffering than pleasure in their lives. And if that's the case, there are some fairly radical conclusions that we might be able to, uh, to draw from that. So it's, it's a fascinating area. It's a relatively young area of research. And I think what most responsible people in this space would tell you is we need a whole lot more knowledge. So 
there are certain interventions that we might already think are uh, pretty much a safe bet. Uh, one example of this is it's a really interesting uh, intervention where you just have your domestic cat either stay inside or if they're going to go outside, you buy them a special collar. And there's a company that makes these. I, I can't remember what the company's called. Uh, I, there might even be more than one. But basically, this is a collar with bells on it in different frequencies and I think lights as well. And the, the whole idea is to make the cat visible and audible to songbirds that are, you know, hopping around and going about their lives. Uh, because domestic cats kill a ton of, uh, of wild birds. And, you know, it's not for nothing that we have the expression cat and mouse. These deaths are not the most pleasant, uh, oftentimes for the birds. So, and I'm sure a lot of cat owners have had this experience directly. Um, I've never owned a cat, but I hear that they'll like bring their prey home, you know, from time to time. So it's not exactly hidden. And, um, Basically, if you buy this special collar for your cat, it's going to kill a lot less birds. And right there, you've done a little piece to help wild animals. So this space really does uh, run the gamut from relatively uh, small and uncontroversial interventions to uh, the, the more controversial stuff that I would say needs more research before we uh, go in on it. That is so fascinating. I had never heard of that. Wow. Um, that's pretty brilliant in a sense. The the thing that's also interesting is, um, domestic cats that spend time outdoors have vastly shorter lifespans than cats that stay indoors all the time. So you can argue not only should you be protecting the birds from the cat, but you should really get the cat indoors because, uh, it's pretty dangerous being a, a cat outdoors. We actually, uh, this is obviously totally anecdotal, but, um, my company uh, that I work at in like an office park had found a stray cat and they built it a house and they uh, would feed it all the time. And then somebody looked up the life expectancy of outdoor cats, domestic cats. And it's just like absurdly low. It's, it's something like two years from the time they're outside. Uh, and then that cat, sure enough, a couple of years, I think that cat lasted about three or four years before it met its untimely demise uh, got hit by a car and it, it dawned on me like this whole time it would have just been better not to have an outdoor cat in the first place right who, like who puts a domestic cat that is not evolutionarily tuned to be out in the wild in the wild in the first place to, to say nothing about all the birds that it kills it's just not even good for the cat so really nobody wins when you have outdoor cats but anyway that collar idea is is really thought-provoking really fascinating I wonder what kind of other similar interventions we could do for other types of animals. The whole idea that you can modify animal behavior in this manner is really, really interesting. So thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, well, I, I think it is uh, interesting, and, and, and it just goes to show how it's frustrating, but in some ways the question, well, how do we help wild animals? It is really best answered by do some more research into how we can help them because you've got to figure that there are other relatively simple ways to help them uh, 
And a core problem might just be that most people have spent literally zero time thinking about it, as I had until about a, a year or two ago. So it's a little bit frustrating for me when someone's primary objection to caring about wild animals is, well, I just don't think there's anything we can do for them. Because to me, it's like, name a problem that we've sunk significant resources into and have absolutely no ability to solve even a little bit. You know, we can do a lot of stuff. Um, we already do some stuff to help wild animals. And uh, I think it's a matter of doing the research. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. A lot of these problems, especially wild animal suffering, they just seem so absurd. Like, honestly, there's, what, what are there, like 7.7 or something like that billion people on the planet. How many of those people have really critically thought about wild animal suffering? Like, almost zero. It, it's ridiculous. The conversation we're having, probably to most people in the world, if you could translate it into all their languages, they would think this is the most ridiculous conversation I've ever heard in my life. What are these two dorks doing? <laughs> they're, they're, yeah. they're just sitting there in these rich countries with no no real problems, talking about wild animal suffering. Give me a break. I think that's probably <laughs> the conventional reaction you would get from most people on the planet uh, if you ask them. Yeah. <laughs> which which makes these conversations from our end pretty pretty funny and difficult at the same time. But 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 the suffering is real. This is the thing. At the end of the day, mm. the suffering is real. It's it's not made up. It's yeah. And so we should do something about it if we care about suffering, which hopefully we do. Yeah, we've got to remember the stakes. You know, it's just so early. We're we're in like we're we're so early in this this real debate. It'll probably be a couple hundred years before this is like a mainstream issue. You know, when people really give a shit about wild animal suffering. And then uh, hopefully at some, at some point there'll be, you know, a, an, an AI that can take care of it or, or give us some good pointers. Yeah. Which brings me to our next segue. So in addition to animal suffering, both domestic, and which we didn't really talk about, but um, maybe we can touch on that real quick before we talk about X-Risk. Um, we didn't talk about domestic animal suffering, which is probably the easiest to, to fix. Well, as, as hard as wild animal suffering is to do anything about, um, domestic animal suffering is pretty straightforward. We, we know exactly what we would have to do to relieve that suffering. Do you want to talk about this a little bit? Yeah, sure. So I don't have the numbers in front of me, but there are a ton of farm animals. If I just were to go from memory, I believe it's uh, something like 60 billion uh, land animals and a few trillion fish and countless shellfish are slaughtered every year uh, to feed people. And you can take away a significant chunk of that, obviously, by changing your own personal diet. So if you were to go vegetarian, depending on what your diet is already, you might save something like 100 animals a year. That'll vary from person to person, um, which is really significant. It may seem like a small chunk of the puzzle, um, a small chunk of the overall problem, but it matters. It matters to those 100 animals. And uh, gosh, I don't know where to go because there are so many common uh, objections in the animal welfare uh, debate 
one that I want to touch just because it's so common is people tend to say, well, I eat humane meat, <laughs> you know. Is that like clean coal? It is like that. Yeah, it is a lot like that. Um, it, it's not that humane meat is impossible in principle. I actually think maybe you could have a farm with happy cows. There might already be some farms with happy cows. But the fact is, it's just such a tiny minority of the animals that are actually being raised today as a matter of fact. So this is one of those cases where you've got to be really careful about kidding yourself. You know, uh, yeah. and again, the line between justification and rationalization, there's a good chance you might be rationalizing if you think that all the chickens you're eating are having these happy, idyllic lives, you know, just because the package says uh, cage free. Well, a lot of the time that doesn't mean that much. So um, it's good to reduce your meat consumption. Another thing I would add there is don't feel bad about just reducing. You know, there's this idea that it has to be all or nothing. And this is tied to the uh, discomfort that we feel around hypocrisy, you know. So a lot of the time you hear something like, well, if you're vegetarian because you don't want to hurt animals, then why aren't you vegan? Or, you know, if you eat less meat because you don't want to hurt animals, why don't you just go fully vegetarian? And it's kind of this annoying argument that's like, why don't you do more? Well, at least I'm doing something, you know, and you wouldn't really hear the analog of, oh, you gave $10,000 to charity last year. Well, why didn't you give $20,000? So if all you're going to do at the end of the day is meatless Mondays or uh, some other scheme where, you know, you have meat at lunch, but not at dinner, I don't know, whatever works for you, you're still helping. Right. So, so don't feel too bad about that. And, and maybe you can up it as you go. So to me, it's not about following rules. It's not about some kind of personal purity. It's just about, you know, doing your little bit to help. And then um, apart from individual dietary change, there are absolutely organizations that you can donate to. Um, I don't want to name drop too much because I'll feel bad for forgetting people. But if you go to animal charity evaluators, they do a really great job of analyzing some of the top animal welfare charities, and uh, they're going to tell you where your money is best spent. It's a little bit like the animal analog of GiveWell. Uh, if people are not familiar with that, GiveWell is uh, one of the original effective altruist organizations that basically their mission is to analyze charities and tell the individual donor where their dollar is going to go the most good. So uh, GiveWell and Animal Charity Evaluators are, are both worth checking out on that front. You can send a few dollars, do a lot of good. Even if you don't go vegetarian at all, it's worthwhile to consider that as a, as a uh, source or a recipient of your charity. Yeah, that's great. I, I hope everyone checks that out. Spe speaking of... Uh animal welfare and vegetarianism. I'm pretty sure that at some point later in life, I'm going to look back at my meat eating years as like the worst. And I, I I've tried a couple times half-heartedly to really reduce my meat consumption. I've been very unsuccessful in this venture and I don't know if it is a weakness of willpower or what, but I eat a lot of meat and I'm, I'm not proud of it. 
I know I'm wrong for doing it. Like I know that it is totally not the morally optimal path. And I just have a hard time getting off of it. Just like I have a hard time avoiding carbs or a hard time getting out there and running those five mile runs. So I, I probably do a little bit less than I w- would if I just didn't even think about the problem, but I don't think I'm doing a very good job. So it's something that I have to uh, grapple with myself. I'm every time I, I run into guys like you or, or girls like you that have really reduced their meat consumption or eliminated it entirely. I'm very impressed and kind of in awe that you have that level of self-control that uh, I'm still working on. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people are in your place and in a way I'm still in your place because for a little while I was vegan and these days I'm more of a vegetarian. I've pretty much loosened up on the dairy. Um, So there's always a little bit more that you can do, you know, Um, even if you are a pure vegan and you think your diet is just immaculate, well, then you've got to think about, do I have a few extra bucks that I can spare? and uh, send to one of these effective charities. So it never stops. You know, that's, that's one of the lessons of effective altruism is, uh, and this goes right back to Singer's essay, nobody's going to be perfect. And it's about always trying to be a little bit better than you were last week. And um, I will say, just on the topic of individual vegetarianism, I... For a long time, I was exactly where you are. I was thinking, this stuff that's going on on factory farms makes me uncomfortable. It seems like a pretty bad thing to be participating in. But yeah, I never really had the impetus to stop, or if I did stop, it didn't last that long. Um, What changed it for me was having a, a friend who went for it first. So... Uh, my college roommate went vegetarian after he and I had talked about it several times, you know, over the course of a, a few weeks or months. And, uh, you know, a week or so after he went, I went. And I've been going ever since. It's been, I think, about two years. But I needed that social glue to get going. I don't know how long it would have been uh, if I hadn't had that. So... I know it can still be tough if you don't have a friend who also wants to do it, but uh, if you can find someone, maybe you uh, get a little suicide tech going and uh, see if you can motivate each other. You know, uh, different things work for different people, but that's what did it for me. And once again, we're social primates. You know, we all need that little push. Yeah, it's just like uh, if you were a college meathead and you had a gym buddy who made you go to the gym, even if you were hungover in the morning. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> You have your vegetarian buddy who who helps get you through. Yeah, absolutely. It helps a lot. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the third, I think, uh, realm or division in the effective altruism world, which is uh, X risk, existential risk. That would be stuff like AI, stuff like nanotech, all kinds of seemingly sci-fi type of scenarios. Um, the, the big idea behind this is really that the expected value of the far future is gigantic. And that even if we can do a very, very small amount of good today towards that far future, that will be much larger, we assume than the current, um, 
realm of humans. So if you assume that humans 2,000 years from now are, are inhabiting 1,000 planets, presumably there are much more sentient beings in the universe than there are today. And so what you do today is very, very important. And what's weird about this from the, the math point of view is that there's a high probability that absolutely zero good <laughs> will come from, you know, donating to the Machine Institute, or what's it called? Machine Intelligence Research Institute or, or similar types of um, kind of places working on the AI control problem where more than likely your dollar is not going to do any good. But if it does, you you might be the most effective person possible. So it's a really fascinating combination of expected value. It's really testing basically your like loss aversion bias. Like, can you handle the fact that there's a, uh, I'm just going to make up some numbers, a 90% chance your dollars will do no good and a 10% chance they will do an unbelievable amount of good. That's kind of, I think, correct me if you feel differently, that's kind of the ethos of the X-Risk uh, wing of the effective altruist group. What do you what do you think about that? Yeah, well, existential risk is a really fascinating area, and I think a really consequential area. It's something that I know a little less about uh, than, uh, let's say, the animal welfare area. Um, but I think there's actually a strong case that it is the most effective place to send your money, and uh, there's a couple things to note about that. One is that, in a way, this is a, a direct contradiction of one negative impression that people get about EA, which is sometimes people come away with the impression that uh, effective altruism is all about numbers, and it's uh, just whatever you can put on a spreadsheet, and it totally fails to capture uh, things that are relatively intangible, uh, and so it's crippled by this. But these people apparently have never heard of the uh, existential risk folks in the movement, because uh, this is precisely a domain in which it's really hard to give specific numbers for the amount of good that you're going to do, right? So if you're looking at uh, an animal welfare charity or a uh, global uh, poverty or, or public health charity, you're probably going to be able to quantify, okay, for this many dollars, we can hand out this many bed nets, or we can convince this many people to go vegan, or whatever it is. And we're probably going to save this many lives or improve this many lives. You can really put it all on a spreadsheet. And this is literally what GiveWell does. One of the charity evaluators I mentioned earlier, they have this epic spreadsheet uh, that you can actually go and look at where they have all these quantities listed and uh, they're very scientific about the whole thing. And that's great. But uh, yeah, there are other domains like existential risk where you have sort of a reason to suspect a high value, but you're kidding yourself if you think you can put like a really precise number on it. You know, you can say that, um, you know, our sun will continue burning for X years. Therefore, we can have Y population for that amount of time, which is, you know, however many lives. And you can do these sort of back of the envelope estimations, but you're never going to have, hey, 
we can save a life for $3,000. You're just not going to have that. So it's this interesting example where effective altruists actually do move away from the pure uh, numerical side of things into like, hey, I'm not sure if this is going to pan out, but it's a bet worth taking. And uh, there's a, an organization called Open Philanthropy, which is all about making these kinds of bets. So they call it hit-based giving. And uh, this is a concept that's borrowed from investing, hit-based investing. And basically the idea there is uh, if you have a portfolio and each investment is relatively risky, you might be all right if 90% of your investments totally fail and 10% of them yeah. are massive, massive successes. You know, you might still come out ahead. You, you might have a portfolio of 100 companies and you one of them is the next Apple and the next Google, but you don't know which ones. So you just kind of spread your bet and, and wait for the uh, expected value to take off because even though you can't predict who's going to be the winner, you know that your winners are going to win more than your losers and your expected value should be very positive. Right. Exactly right. Yeah. So this is what open philanthropy does. And uh, yeah, if you have that 10% of successes, you're still going to walk away happy at the end of the day. And um, open philanthropy likes to tell this story about the green revolution. So there was this guy called Norman Borlaug and most people probably mm. have never heard of him. Uh, the man who fed the world. Exactly right. Yeah. So, uh, he got a grant from the uh, Rockefeller Foundation, I believe it was, and he ended up developing a new kind of wheat uh, that was easier to grow in adverse conditions. And these days he's credited with saving over a billion lives, if I remember correctly. So this is sort of a wow. bet that you might think like, uh, I don't know, we're really going to fund this guy who like is trying to work on new kinds of wheat. What is that really going to come to? But if you take this hits-based approach, boy, does it work out, you know? Um, and existential risk is, is definitely in that category. Um, so I have a whole lot of respect for the people who make something like artificial intelligence their primary focus area. I think it's hard as hell to work on. Uh, I think it's really important. But I should probably also mention that that's not the only important area of uh, existential risk. It might be worth mentioning here that there's a distinction some people like to draw between uh, existential risk and catastrophic risk. So uh, the existential category is there will be no more humans after this happens. You know, we're talking apocalypse. Um, the catastrophic risk is more like this would be really, really, really bad, but not to the point of full extinction. And to me, that's still worth worrying about, you know. Um, so that might be something like a pandemic. Um, the Spanish flu in the early 1900s killed, I believe, something like 10% of the world's population. And you might think that there are some reasons um, to expect that to be even worse in the future. Um, for example, the world is more interconnected now. Um, so you might have more people hopping on airplanes. Uh, and, and, and spreading 
whatever this pathogen is that's gonna gonna harm a lot of people. Um, and so what we have to do is develop the technologies to detect these kinds of outbreaks early, prevent them from happening in the first place. Maybe we need to scale back our usage of antibiotics in uh, farm animals so that we don't get superbugs. Maybe we need to work on our policies. Um, uh, maybe we need to keep our vaccination rates up. You know, there's all kinds of things that we can do. I'm not really a subject matter expert on this area, but just to say, uh, if you think AI is crazy, that doesn't amount to thinking that existential risk is crazy because there are other kinds. Hmm. Um, That's a great point. Yeah, yeah. So it's not necessarily all that out there. You know, um, it could even in principle be as simple as like, uh, how do we stop uh, an asteroid from striking, you know, and taking us out like it took out the dinosaurs. Um, right. The only thing is uh, actually, most people who've looked at that figure that the probability of an asteroid strike of that magnitude per year is actually pretty low. So potentially it's not as high a priority as the other things, but. Um, well, well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's one thing we don't have to worry about. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's some good news. So I'll, I'll just give you my quick personal analysis of this. I know my own shortcomings. I, I know the expected value of X, X risk is like really high and that I probably should put my money there, but I'm a weak, flawed human being and I want to make sure that I at least do some like net positive impact on the world of my life. So I kind of have this weird plan where in my Younger years, I'm going to donate to exclusively global health, right? Stuff like Against Malaria, stuff like Deworm the World, stuff like SCI. And I'm going to, you know, make sure I save a bunch of lives in that realm. And once I've established kind of a, a base where I know I've like done some good, then I think I'll be less risk averse and I'll be more willing to maybe speculate with my uh, charitable dollars, so to speak, and invest in stuff like X risk, stuff like animal suffering, or even wild animal suffering. But I know that whole that whole idea is really just a, a bias and a weakness. I have a loss aversion that is irrational that I don't want to die without having made a positive impact. So I'm going to kind of make a suboptimal uh, positive impact first. Let's say my first ten or twelve years of my working career. And then thereafter, I will probably consider more high upside opportunities like X risk and, and animal suffering, perhaps. I mean, you know, I, I'm kind of, I kind of come from an investing background a little bit. And so I think of this like a portfolio, you know, what does my portfolio look like as far as my charitable dollars? How do I allocate between the three realms of, of global health, of X risk and, and animal welfare? And it's kind of like, in your early career, you concentrate on first getting financial independence and then kind of going from there. From the charity side, I kind of concentrate on getting a positive net impact based on global health initiatives. And then if I want to get fancy, if I want to get cute with my charitable dollars when I'm in my 40s, 50s, 60s, maybe I'll do that. And even though I know that's not truly rational, the rational thing would probably be just 
go for the highest expected value, which is probably not global health. Uh, I'm a I'm a weak fucking human, so I'm going to do it my way anyway. Well, yeah, I think a lot of people feel that way. So, first of all, uh, I probably should say to clarify what I was saying earlier: open philanthropy uh, doesn't only do this sort of far future speculative stuff. So, although they are a fan of the hits based ideology. Um, they actually do what they call worldview diversification. I think that's how they call it, but that's the basic idea. Um, they spread their funding out between uh, stuff that focuses on like your conventional global poverty, public health stuff, and your animal welfare stuff, and your crazy far future existential risk stuff. So while they are about hits-based, they're also about diversification. and. Um, I don't think you're going terribly wrong necessarily if you if you go with something that is a little bit low risk. You could fall back on, hey, the confidence intervals on those expected values are so wide uh, that I don't necessarily trust them. And weird things happen when you take expected values too seriously. Um, so I do think that's uh, worth considering. And this isn't something I know a ton about, but I want to bring it up just because um, I just saw it a few days ago, so it feels topical. There was a post on Less Wrong, which is a sort of rationalist forum, which sort of borders on effective altruism. And uh, this person was arguing that if there's a slow artificial intelligence takeoff, you should save your money and uh, donate it later. So I probably should unpack that. Um, when people are thinking about artificial intelligence, and specifically artificial general intelligence, which is you know an artificial intelligence which uh, can in principle solve any problem, and uh, maybe it's super intelligent, which means that it's way more intelligent than human beings even are. Um, there's this big debate there about whether we'll have a slow or a fast takeoff. So is it going to be that overnight Google or Facebook or DeepMind comes up with a general intelligence and then it just like starts doing its thing on the world stage immediately? Or is it going to be more like we're going to see the signs months or years ahead of time and things are going to scale up gradually? You know, this is a big question for strategy because it, it, it matters. The world is going to look very different if we have, say, uh, several competing companies that are developing AGI around the same time, or if we're just going to have one moonshot company that just figures it out, you know, in a bolt of inspiration, and all of a sudden we've got AGI. So this is a big question, and I think the basic idea is if you think it's probably going to be a slow takeoff, then you might want to actually save your money and donate it more uh, tactically uh, around that time that the takeoff begins. Because at that time, you'll be more able to target your donations uh, to do the most good. So this is tied into the general question of donating now versus later. This is a, actually a big debate in effective altruism, which, yeah, Huge people debate. might not expect yeah. based on sort of the, the intro level understanding of EA as like, you know, donate your money, get it out there, save the people. 
Um, but some people are thinking for various reasons, maybe you ought to really save up and learn more about the world and wait to see how things turn out. Maybe you write in your will, like uh, when I'm gone, donate uh, to X or Y cause. Maybe uh, upon retirement, when you're relatively, you know, late in life, you want to decide. Uh, and, and it's a fair case because you might think you're going to learn so much about the world and things are going to change so much. Maybe your donations can actually be a lot more effective later on. Um, you can tie this to the investing concept of leverage. And you can think of knowledge as a kind of leverage. Mm. So would you rather give your money now to a sort of good but not great cause? Or would you rather learn more and then give your money later to the best possible cause? So this is a fair debate. A common retort is if you take the give later approach, the danger is you won't give at all because your, your charitable side will sort of atrophy, you know. Both fair points. I really don't know where to stand on this one, but it's, it's something for everyone to consider, I suppose. So I guess this is all to say, uh, your approach sounds all right to me. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I've thought about that question a lot. So my whole kind of uh, introduction or, or path into this rationality community, if you want to call it that, uh, it came via investing. It came via like a Warren Buffett type investors that, you know, I was kind of idolizing in my college years and thought, wow, I, I want to be like that so I can get financial independence very young and then I can do whatever the fuck I want. And, and if you if you read the works of uh, Warren Buffett's vice chairman, whose name is Charlie Munger, who's kind of a cult hero in some circles, he is obsessed with rationality. The dude is 90 three years old right now, I think, and still doing these six hour annual Q and A's with Warren. But he was kind of like, uh, he was doing the whole rationalist thing before it was cool. And so from there, I kind of found myself thinking, Oh wow. Look at this guy talking about rationality all the time. I guess rationality is a virtue after all. And that led me to th through some different avenues into this rationality world, into effective altruism. But bring it full circle, it comes back to this idea of the time value of money, right? It comes back to, you know, do you defer gratification now? Do you defer your effective altruist dollars now in the hope or assumption that, say, 35 years from now, we might know a lot more about consciousness? We might know a lot more about artificial intelligence. In fact, inevitably, we'll know a lot more about those things in that time. And perhaps it is foolish now to invest your money thinking that you know what the future is going to look like. I'll just give you what I'm doing in my own life. I'm kind of taking this approach. I'm trying to have my cake and eat it too, even though I know you can't do that, where I am donating every year, but it's a relatively small amount compared to the amount I could donate towards effective altruist charities. I'm probably about 90% give later, accumulate the wealth. And by the time I am in my 60s or 70s, we'll be so much more advanced in terms of our 
understanding of consciousness and suffering in terms of artificial intelligence that I'll be able to make a much better decision to say nothing of the real compound interest that will accrue to whatever funds are being deferred. And it will be able to be a, a huge impact. The traditional argument of the other side, as far as I'm aware, is that, especially on the global health side, these opportunities are shrinking. There is only so much money that can go to deworming. There's only so much money that can go to stuff like against malaria, that if you're not if you're not quick and if you don't donate your money now, you're going to miss your opportunity to do a whole lot of good. And 10 years from now, instead of the, um, I, I don't know what the terminology is, but it's basically the cost per life equivalent saved um, or the daily adjusted life years um, of, of the average lifespan is something like three or four or $5,000. The argument is that it, number is going to rise as the low hanging fruit gets plucked. And if you don't really quick donate your money now in 15 or 20 years, it's going to cost twice or three times as much in real terms to do as much good. And I just don't believe that. Um, I just think we're, we're on such a trajectory in terms of our technologic growth in terms of our, you know, just understanding of the world that, I'm willing to take the risk. I'm willing to only donate a small amount every year. Kind of, It's almost a token donation that I do every year to at least give myself the psychological satisfaction that, yes, I am an effective altruist, and yes, I'm donating every year, but the reality is the big donation is going to come late in my life, and I'm, I'm banking on us having a lot more knowledge you know, 50 years from now than we do today and that adjusted for inflation and adjusted for the price of quality adjusted life years, I will be able to do more good in 50 years than I will be if I spent that money today. Sorry for the rant, but that's my uh, my current position. Uh, yeah, I think there's some great points in there. I really like the idea of a token donation um, because that is sort of a compromise point between the, uh, you know, suspicion that maybe our leverage or our knowledge will somehow grow over time. And also this idea that you don't want to forget that you intended to be an altruist in the first place, you know? So it, it seems to me like a pretty satisfying middle path actually. Um, and I just think predicting the future is so hard, you know? So I, I don't feel confident uh, making a prediction either way about whether our leverage is on average going to grow or shrink. Because it, you know, it might be true that some of the low-hanging fruit gets snatched up in the developing world. On the other hand, the stakes are rising all the time as technology becomes more powerful and the world becomes more interconnected. You know, I mean, imagine what you could have done with uh, the equivalent of a few thousand dollars, you know, 500 years ago. You know, think about a pre-industrial world. Um, you're probably not going to be able to get as much done because you can't instantaneously transfer this money to the most effective organization on the globe. You know, there's no internet. You don't even know who the most effective organization is, right? So in, in a lot of ways, you might expect that the continuing growth of technology 
means that uh, our leverage will grow. Uh, because just spitballing here, but as AI continues to uh, expand its capabilities, you might later on be able to really shape the direction that some policy or some company ends up taking. But right now, it might just be too early to do that. Like, you don't know uh, which company is ultimately going to be successful in developing an artificial general intelligence. You don't know if the takeoff is going to be slow or fast. You don't know which country it's going to happen in. You don't know if there's going to be a substantial arm race between uh, China and the United States. Um, we just don't know uh, exactly uh, where the problems are going to be. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's a, I think that's a solid approach. And if nothing else, doing podcasts about this is going to hold me accountable in my older age. So if I decide to all of a sudden say, oh, you know what, maybe I should just buy my family a uh, large estate rather than, you know, donate it all to an effective charity, there'll be a uh, there'll be a record of my younger self telling me, don't be a dumbass. <laughs> yeah, I think that's solid. So we basically agreed on most points, right? I think we kind of have similar thought patterns on this and I keep coming back to it because I, I, I live in a different world. Like, uh, you know, I live in suburban Pennsylvania. I've never been on an Ivy league campus. I don't really know a lot of people personally that have, uh, that level of, I don't know what you want to call it experience or prestige or whatever, but I kind of, uh, live in a world where most people think most of the things we've talked about tonight are ridiculous. And that leads me to what I'm going to call the effective altruism popularity problem. So one mm. of the first things I realized as I got kind of into this movement is how unpopular it is. It kind of seems popular sometimes, right? There's right that you have your Peter Singer, who's got 93,000 Twitter followers. You got Will McCaskill, who wrote Doing Good Better at 20,000. He's been on Rogan and stuff. You have Give Well, which has 18,000 um, followers. 80,000 Hours has 11,000 followers on Twitter. Ledge You Can Save has 12. And the Effective Altruism Twitter page has 7. But uh, on the grand scheme of things, that is that is nothing. I mean, that's literally nothing. Like... You have more Twitter followers than some of those groups. So the bottom line is uh, effective altruism is not very popular. It's got this niche among people maybe like you or people like me who are very concerned with their ethics, people that are kind of brainy and nerdy and, and think in terms of utilitarian calculus. But for everyone else, for the other seven point whatever billion people, they just like aren't into this stuff. So I was I was wondering kind of your take on how can this movement grow in a way that appeals to to the every man kind of and, and the every woman. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, possibly the first thing I should say is that I've heard from some people in the movement who, frankly, aren't really all that concerned with growth. I think some people are comfortable to let the movement grow slowly uh, in order to insulate it from 
perhaps PR risks or something else. I'm not the best person to, to represent that view because I tend to be on the other side of it. I think, uh, as I think you're implying that uh, growing the movement is probably going to be a good thing overall. Um, so on that note, I'd, I'd want to say, first of all, that, um, you know, the, the numbers are not huge, but it's possible that these memes have spread further than those particular numbers would indicate. So there may be many more people who have heard of the idea of donating based on effectiveness, but they don't necessarily know that it's called effective altruism. Uh, they don't necessarily go on and like the page. Uh, anecdotally, I think that's the case. You know, I have many friends who I've talked their ears off about these ideas and they've been like, oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Maybe I'll think about that uh, if I get around to donating any money. But they're not going on liking the page or following Peter Singer on, on Twitter. So um, to some extent, yeah, I think those numbers underestimate the impact that the movement has had. But. I don't mean to bury the point. I think it's absolutely a fair point that it's a relatively small movement. You know, we do get buried in our own social circles. So I'm still always a little surprised when someone uh, hasn't even heard of effective altruism. I shouldn't be surprised, but I am, you know, so that's, that's, that's how it goes. But yeah, I, I suppose another thing is that I just don't know how hard the movement as a whole has been trying to grow. So possibly if we made more of a concerted effort at it, uh, we could get substantial results, you know? Like you mentioned Sam Harris, and I'm a big fan of Sam Harris, actually. I've, I've listened to and read a, a lot of the stuff that he's ever made, and um, I think he's a really thoughtful guy. And I don't know. I, I suppose he's talked a bit about effective altruism, but he hasn't really come out as being like, this is the way, you know, you should all support this. Like, um, he hasn't really thrown his weight behind it. And I think he's got like a million Twitter followers. So it could make a difference just to target like individual uh, public intellectuals and try to get them from marginally on board to really on board. That might be one way to kind of spur the growth. Yeah, I, I suppose the general idea has to be about finding ways to make this thing palatable to all kinds, you know? So I wouldn't say that all the effective altruists I've met have been, uh, you know, carbon copies of the same like psych psychological, uh, you know, framework, but there are definitely certain things that most of us have in common. And a lot of people who are really good hearted individuals who maybe are going out and volunteering at a local homeless shelter or something like that, a lot of these people, frankly, might be turned off by some of the ways uh, that effective altruists have exposed their ideas. So I do think it's worthwhile to think about how do we market ourselves, you know? And I suppose to some years it might be distasteful to even talk about marketing and charity in the same sentence you know marketing is kind of fat cats on madison avenue you think about mad men and like scotch and cigarettes you know um but 
in some ways it is a marketing problem. You know, we have to craft our messages carefully. And uh, I, I think, again, drawing on the psychological insights and learning from trial and uh, uh, trial and error, we can make progress uh, that way. One way that I like to express it is the difference between caring and counting. Um, I don't know if that's a common phrase. Um, I initially heard it, I think, from Larry Summers, actually. Um, but the idea basically is uh, a lot of the people who care don't count, and a lot of the people who count don't care. Um, wow. So you might think counting is like being really analytically minded, pulling out your spreadsheet when you have to make a decision. Um, and caring is like being really in tune with uh, what's going on, um, you know, in the lives of others and being very empathetic. And effective altruism in some ways is about the practice of caring and counting at the same time. And we need to grow the meme that one can care and count at the same time. A lot of people, I think, suppose that those are, uh, you know, incompatible. And it's really important that we grow our ability to uh, do both at the same time. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. It's it's very interesting. It's a very homogenous group of kind of coastal tech-centric people who are v generally very educated. And it, it can be a little bit intimidating to outsiders, which might be a bit of a turnoff. Um, it's a little bit, uh, I don't know, elitist is too strong a word, but it sometimes comes off that way. But at the same time, I'm I'm not sure that that's not also it's one of the group's strengths, and it's one of the group's limitations. It's clearly a strength because there's a whole bunch of smart people with a lot of resources who can think about these very difficult problems, like the far future, like artificial intelligence, like wild animal suffering or domestic animal suffering. Um, but at the same time, it's just so alien to the like the mainstream. Like how many people in this? we'll just say the United States, how many people in this country even know the difference between utilitarianism, virtue ethics, and and whatever other types of things are out there, let alone uh, ha have real cause neutrality. And it's just such an alien movement, I think, to most people that it's kind of a, you're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place where you have a, a wonderfully logical system, a, a great framework for good that just leaves most people with a bitter taste in their mouth. It's a really tough problem and I certainly don't have the answer to it. I'm trying to find it because frankly I'm I find myself at that intersection where most of the people I interact with on the internet are down with this stuff and most people I interact with in the real world are not down with this stuff. Hmm. So I have a pretty seriously invested interest in figuring out how to bridge between those two gaps and I just haven't found it frankly. My, my, the way that some people in my family look at me when I talk about this shit is priceless. Uh, <laughs> it's priceless. I try this all the time. You should really see the look on some of my aunts and uncles' faces when I when I talk about this stuff. Mm -hmm. And they just think I'm absolutely nuts. And in fact, not only do they think I'm nuts, they think I'm dangerous. Mm. The idea that I'm not prioritizing my family and, and close-knit uh, community above others. The fact that I'm not valuing their lives higher than everyone else is, in fact, very dangerous, very uh, subversive almost. And I don't know if that's something you run into. It sounds like you run in a little bit more academic circles than I do, but uh, it's not just 
the you're crazy face. It's the you're dangerous face is mm. what I get a lot. And that's like deeply concerning to me. And I'm, I'm just trying to figure out how to bridge the gap between those two different worlds, right? It's a divided country and I'm trying to, trying to bridge it. Yeah, well, I definitely can relate to that. I think it's early days. Uh, so there's still reason to be hopeful about these ideas becoming more popular. And I think some of these ideas can seem really counterintuitive. And there's kind of an art to showing people that they actually follow from other more fundamental intuitions that they already hold. So, you know, you need a, a, a certain number of axioms or, or foundational commitments to cling on to. But if someone is already committed to, let's say, uh, following the evidence and being consistent in some of these fundamental norms of, of reasonable thinking, then you can show them an argument like the one in Famine, Affluence, and Morality. And you don't need to show them the whole essay. You know, the beautiful thing about the argument is you can write it down uh, on four lines on a sheet of paper. I mean, the core of it is really, really simple. And it is a way of showing that these counterintuitive conclusions actually follow from principles that are intuitive to the point of being almost inescapable. Right. So if you're talking with someone who is committed to being reasonable and consistent and all these things, then you can sort of challenge them to show you what's wrong with the argument. And uh, I've had some success uh, that way by just saying, like, yeah, I get that it's uh, counterintuitive. I didn't come up with it with myself. I don't think it's easy. Uh, I don't love it but it seems true and the truth value is separate from those other things. So, you know, I, I think I, I, I kind of said something along these lines earlier. It's like, is it false or do you just not like it? And you have to hope that the person you're talking with can honestly make that distinction. And if not, then it, it's hard to see where to go from there, unfortunately. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. It, it it brings me, I think, to a good way to kind of start to close out this conversation is it, as much as I've raised tons and tons of objections and, and issues and obstacles towards this line of thinking, it really is an, an unbelievable opportunity to do good. Um, it's, again, anecdotal, but one of the things that, one of the few things that me and my father have kind of uh, done as a sober activity together in the last like three years is uh he got an ancestry.com membership and we started researching our family tree and kind of trading different pieces of uh documents or evidence that we would find and go back and forth and through this process i i you gain insight into the people that came before you you know your your ancestors who lived in the 17 or 1800s and you realized like just how little they knew you you see that they couldn't even write their names properly on a census. Like uh, my name's John J O H N. And I have a, a great grandfather that was named J O H N. And on a census, he put his name as J H O N. Hmm. So he was clearly on the fringes of literacy and it, it brings 
to my mind this um this idea that we're at a point in history where we have opportunities to do good that the people that came before us just couldn't even conceive of. And unless I royally fuck my life up, I should do magnitudes more good than anyone in my, you know, genealogy or family tree that came before me. Mm. I would have to seriously royally fuck up to not be the, the, the most effective person in my family history. Um, it, it, you know, I don't know what my, my siblings and cousins and kids will do, but from the past up until now, you know, it was all at best. If you had any money left over, you might donate to, to your church. And in my family's history, that was a Catholic church. And I had some, some family members that were Jewish, but most of them were Catholic and it just wasn't a very effective thing to do with your money. So I look back at these old documents and my ancestors misspelling their own names and I think to myself, holy shit, if I just stay on the path, I'm going to do some some good things. And anyone who's kind of in this effective altruism movement and, and is genuine about it has an opportunity to be a superhero, like a, a real live superhero. You might not have a cape. You might not have magic powers, but you can do an unbelievable amount of good. And that is a reason to jump out of bed in the morning. and you know, a reason to put your energy and your heart into each and every day. So that's pretty fucking cool. I think. Uh, yeah. Maybe I'll just leave it at that. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's such a powerful reframing, you know, it's a kind of heroism. And if you had the opportunity to save someone from a burning building, uh, once or twice or three times a year, you'd feel like a champ, you know, you'd feel great about yourself. And uh, this is something that you can do. And uh, you just have to send a check. Like that's what this world affords us. This time uh, in an interconnected world uh, where we have all this information at our fingertips. Uh, that's one of the perks, right? So um, I think that that reframing is, is absolutely huge, you know, a lot of times people, their mind goes to guilt. And are you saying that I should feel guilty? Are you saying I'm a bad person? Well, no, uh, not really. I mean, you can think about it that way if you want to, but you don't have to. You can instead think of it as this is my opportunity to be a hero, you know, to do something really, really good. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's a, a beautiful vision. Well, man, it has been so awesome getting the chance to to talk with you. I'm excited to see where you go with your EA journey, your your experience doing direct work and research. Uh, please stay in touch and, and let me know how things are going. For anyone that's listening, if you haven't already checked out Famine, Affluence, and Morality by Peter Singer, uh, you can find it at utilitarian.net slash singer. And if you want to know more, about Evan and the awesome work he's doing and the essays he's written, uh, you can go to sandhoffner.com. That is S-A-N-D-H-O-E-F-N-E-R.com. And his Twitter handle is at Evan Sandhoffner. Dude, thank you so much. I had a blast. 
and I hope we can do this again sometime. Thanks, John. This has been really great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to keeping up with the podcast and uh, keeping up with what you're up to. And uh, yeah, I'd absolutely do this again. All right, this has been another episode of the Books and Booze podcast. Thanks again, dear listener, for your time and for listening. We will see you next time. Good night. Thank you again so much for listening to the Books and Booze podcast. We know your time is valuable, and the fact that you took some time out of your brief life to share it with us and spend it with us really does mean a hell of a lot. Uh, if you like the program, please share it with your friends on social media or word of mouth or however. That is the best way to support the program. Also, if you could give us a review on iTunes, that would be huge. That really does boost popularity uh, if you have good iTunes rating. And you can check out all of our episodes and show notes at our website, booksandboozepodcast.com. And also, you can hit us up on the Twitter at at booksandbooze underscore. Ask us questions, give us tips and ideas, and we will respond to you with some feedback. Hell yeah. Our theme song for the Books and Booze podcast is Danger Storm by Kevin McLeod at IncomTech.com, I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Peace out.